Hello and welcome to the Career Explorations and Genomic Medicine Research Podcast. This program is sponsored by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Program for Precision Medicine and Healthcare. This Career Explorations program is aimed at undergraduate students. Our goals are to help you expand your knowledge of potential careers related to genomic medicine research. And we hope to increase your understanding of what you will need to do to become a member of the genomic medicine research workforce. We also want to help you build a supportive network of professionals. Each episode of this podcast series presents a conversation with a researcher or clinician who works in a particular aspect of genomic medicine research. Today we are speaking with Cindy Powell, MD and genetic counselor. Cindy is a pediatric geneticist with expertise in hearing loss, newborn genetic screenings, and rare diseases. Her research interests include the ethical, legal, and social implications of genomics research as new technologies emerge, as well as improvement and implementation of advanced newborn screenings to identify rare diseases. Okay, well, welcome. Do you want me to just kind of go ahead and go through kind of how I got into genetics and my career path or, and we'll have time for questions and things after. Is that how yes. yeah. things and, like to run it? Okay. And what it's like to be you during doing your job and what parts okay. you really like and what parts are challenging. And okay. Well, I will, um, I'll start out sort of my career path. Um, so, and well, currently I'm a, a pediatric clinical geneticist in the Department of Pediatrics at UNC. We have our division of pediatric genetics and metabolism. And so I um, started out in um, undergrad as a um, pre-med and, you know, really thought that's what I'd do. And then I took my first freshman chemistry course because uh, I was going to be a chemistry major and I realized I wasn't going to be a chemistry major. And I switched to biology and um, I really enjoyed, you know, biology and genetics. I took like the, you know, genetics for biology majors with the fruit flies and that was pretty daunting, but I, I got through that. And then I um, we had a course in human genetics at that time and I took that and it just really opened my eyes to kind of, you know, genetics wasn't just Punnett squares and, you know, fruit fly eye color and things that it really, you know, impacted human beings. And right around that time, they had discovered that when a woman was carrying a fetus with, uh, with spina bifida, you know, where the neural tube uh, is open in the back, um, that the, there was an elevated protein called alpha fetoprotein um, that they could, uh, you know, quantify um, or measure in the amniotic fluid if they were doing an amniocentesis, which they just started doing um, back when I was an undergrad. So I found that fascinating, like, wow, you know, there's a way to detect things like this, you know, ahead of time. And so I ended up doing paper for that course in, uh, you know, the detection of neural, neural tube defects by looking at alpha fetoprotein. Um, and then, you know, still kind of contemplating, do I want to go to medical school or not? And I 
especially in those days, and it's probably not that different nowadays, but it was just so cutthroat to be a pre-med. And, um, you know, there were just nasty things that students would do. They contaminated fellow students, uh, you know, reagents in chemistry class, and um, they, you know, would mess up their free experiments and things. And I, you know, I, I, I don't want to get into that mindset. So um, around the same time, one of my uh, sorority sisters, who was a couple of years ahead of me, um, had found out about genetic counseling. And so, uh, you know, she uh, ended up going to, there were only two programs in genetic counseling in those days. And so she ended up going to one of those programs. It was at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And so, you know, I thought, well, genetic counseling, I mean, that would, you know, I could like work with patients and, but still, you know, utilize my understanding of genetics and continue my interest in genetics. So that was like, oh, that sounded perfect. So I ended up applying to graduate school in genetic counseling. And I went to Sarah Lawrence, which was the other program at that time. And that was really the first program in the country. Um, and so I trained for two years in genetic counseling, and I worked for several years in, in genetic counseling. And then um, in those days, there wasn't a lot that you could really do as a genetic counselor. Um, prenatal genetic counseling was, was kind of just getting started, and I was in pediatrics which I loved and I was fascinated, but, you know, I, I worked with a physician and there was a limit as to, you know, how much independence I could have. So along with that, and then some of my former uh, fellow students in genetic counseling had um, applied and gotten into medical school. So I thought like, well, if they can do it, you know, I should be able to do it. And the people who I worked with, um, this was at Children's Hospital, uh, Children's National Medical Center now in um, Washington, D.C., uh, you know, almost all of them were really encouraging, you know, for me to go to medical school. So I luckily had all the requirements and I, you know, took like an MCAT review course and worked hard like one summer, took some, you know, a little time off from work excuse me, from work to study, and ended up um, applying, and I got into uh, two medical schools. Um, I was living in Virginia, Northern Virginia at that time, and luckily one of the schools was a Virginia State School, um, which in those days was Medical College of Virginia. Now it's called Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. And I got in there, um, I got into George Washington University, which was the one affiliated with Children's Hospital in DC, but it was private, so much more expensive. So, um, you know, even the, the doctors, professors who I worked with, who were, you know, on the faculty at GW, they said, oh, you know, there's no, no decision to be made, you know, you'll get as good an education, you know, in, in Richmond. So I went there for medical school and it was nice because a lot of the students in my class had done things for a few years. One woman had been, I think, an English teacher in high school, and there were nurses, there were, you know, people that had just been in totally different um, areas of work, but, you know, thought about medical school. And I think the school liked the fact that people had been out for, you know, at least a couple of years and had more time to really 
think about, you know, is that what they wanted to do? Um, because of at least one student I remember in my class who didn't, like he went straight from college and because his parents had been doctors and they always expected him to be a doctor and, you know, he really didn't want to do it. So he, he dropped out. So I think, you know, for the most part, everybody was pretty motivated. You know, this is definitely what we want to do. So um, it, that was a good choice for me. Um, again, sort of thinking back to, um, you know, undergrad and like this whole prenatal diagnosis and stuff. And so I took um, an elective um, in uh, maternal fetal medicine and, you know, got to do ultrasounds, prenatal ultrasounds and things. And I, I really like that. Um, but I found that, you know, doing my uh, like uh, core rotations in OBGYN and pediatrics, that I, I like the OB part, but I, I, I wasn't thrilled about the GYN and I, I you know, wasn't that thrilled with doing surgery. And so, um, and in pediatrics, and a lot of pediatric people will tell you, like you, you sort of know that you want to go into pediatrics when you're helping at a delivery of a baby and, you know, the baby comes out and, and you're more interested in what's going on with the baby than, you know, the mother. <laughs> So I found you know, that that was definitely the case for me, and my rotation in pediatrics was wonderful. Um, you know, had a really great uh, attending doctor, kind of an old-time pediatrician from Richmond, um, and I just had a, a great experience there. So, you know, it takes a while. Like, you do these rotations um, in medical school. And, you know, you spend maybe one to two months on the rotations, whether it's surgery, internal medicine, pediatrics, OB, or what have you. And, you know, it, it's often hard to, you know, make a decision that can impact the rest of your life in a fairly short period of time. Um, but after my, you know, great experience in pediatrics, I thought, you know, I really want to do pediatrics. So I um, applied for a residency in pediatrics and ended up going back up to DC um, to do my residency at Children's National. And, um, and so I, you know, gravitated, of course, back to the genetics group there and, you know, spent time with them, did an elective or two with them. And, um, and then uh, they had just started a new fellowship program in genetics at that time. And it was um, combined with uh, uh, working like half the time at the Children's Hospital and then half the time at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda. So that was really a, a great you know, experience to have the clinical exposure at Children's but then also be able to, um, you know, have experience at the, at the NIH. And I worked in a lab that, you know, was involved in some research studies, but I saw patients at NIH also. And you get to see patients with these incredibly rare conditions that even as a geneticist, you might see once in your, you know, career. And there they bring, you know, folks from all over the world for, these special studies they were doing. So you might see 20 patients with these, you know, incredibly rare conditions. So it was, you know, really, really good experience for me. Um, 
And then there was also an opportunity I could do an, an extra year um, in cytogenetics. So I still enjoyed the lab, but I didn't, I knew I didn't want to do that full time, but I, I did enough work in cytogenetics that I was also able to get board certified in cytogenetics as well as in um, clinical genetics. So I uh, finished my training and my parents had uh, moved, they retired to North Carolina. So I was looking for jobs kind of in the mid-Atlantic um, to southeastern part of the country. And fortunately, um, here at Chapel Hill, they were looking for somebody who had, uh, could, you know, help out in the cytogenetics lab, but also, you know, see patients and um, help on the clinical side. So luckily, I, I got hired here. And um, when I first came, I spent, you know, probably about 20% of my time with doing lab things like signing out cases, you know, in our clinical cytogenetics lab. So, you know, diagnosing children who, you know, might have Down syndrome or um, some type of, you know, deletion on their chromosomes. Although at that time we were just starting to do fish um, to detect uh, certain types of deletions that, you know, you can't, couldn't see with the traditional karyotype, you know, looking under a microscope. Um, so I, I did that, and um, luckily we had two PhD lab directors in cytogenetics, and they really did the bulk of the running of the lab from, from day to day. But it was nice for me because I could still, you know, keep my hand in things in, in the lab. And then the rest of my time was spent seeing patients um, in our genetics clinic, which then, you know, wasn't all that busy. I think we had, you know, one day or half a day of clinic a week. Um, and we could still, you know, keep up with the number of patients. Now that's definitely changed. You know, we have clinic now. I mean, at least one of us is in clinic pretty much every day of the week. Um, so uh, then after uh, doing that, well, and I was always interested in teaching. And so um, all of the faculty in, in the division of pediatric genetics would um, teach in the for the medical students. And uh, the course, the main course was in the second year of training. And, um, uh, you know, we'd spend, you know, several weeks, like we, I think, block our clinic schedules. And, you know, we just devoted to, to teaching the students and having a lot of small group classes, um, which was always the most popular thing with, with the students was the small groups. Um, they've, you know, changed the curriculum a lot over the years. I'm not as involved with the student teaching anymore. They've got a new in integrated curriculum. But, um, you know, we still, still spend time with the medical students, mostly uh, when they rotate for, for electives in genetics with us. Um, so uh, then after a few years, um, my colleague, Dr. Art Aylesworth, who had uh, headed up the residency program in genetics, was getting closer to retirement. So anyway, I took over the uh, medical genetics residency program at UNC and have continued to do that until the present time. 
And so we uh, currently have two residents who um, one completed uh, her uh, residency program in pediatrics and the other uh, trained in internal medicine. So you you know, definitely can do genetics from a lot of different primary care specialties. Um, the requirement is that you do one year of um, primary care residency in order to be eligible to uh, get into a medical genetics residency program. But every program kind of has their own rules and we require at least two years and most of our fellows um, in genetics have completed their primary care residency program. But we've trained people in, um, uh, you know, family medicine, as I said, internal medicine, pediatrics, neurology. One of our current pediatric neurologists at UNC um, did neurology first and then did uh, genetics training with us. Um, and then, uh, Prior to the two this year, the, the last fellow we trained, he was a pediatric ophthalmologist. So he, um, you know, just had an interest in genetics and wanted to, you know, get formal training in it. So um, then uh, I started collaborating with, um, so, so that was kind of, you know, the educational part of things, the clinical part of things, and then... Um, I started uh, on the research side uh, collaborating with someone who was interested in newborn screening. And we did a pilot project looking at um, uh, newborn screening, checking for something called Fragile X syndrome, which is a common uh, type of inherited intellectual disability, uh, often with autism spectrum disorder in um, individuals who have this condition. It was a little different than uh, standard newborn screening would be done because typically, you know, we, we screen newborns for conditions that we can do something about, like there's a special formula we can put them on or there's a special medication that we can give or, you know, we can treat them for the possibility of infections or, you know, what have you. And Fragile X was different, but it was a good condition to study to kind of see how parents thought about, you know, would they want to have their babies tested for something like that. So that work was with uh, someone um, who was that at that time in our, it was called the Frank Porter Graham Child Development Center, which is part of UNC, and they, they do a lot of research work in developmental disabilities. And so I continued collaborating with him. And then um, after I came, a few years later, they started the Department of Genetics. I said, I'm in pediatrics, and then they started this new Department of Genetics at UNC and you know, brought in um, PhDs and MDs there. And, and um, hey there. Um, how are you? Welcome. So I was just still going through kind of my, my career path and, and getting into um, the research part of things that I've done. Um, so the person I was working with, he retired, but then started at um, a company in Research Triangle Park called RTI International. 
And then um, along with the genetics department um, folks, we did a, um, a study looking at next generation sequencing in newborns and whether, you know, that would be a, a possible, you know, a reasonable thing that we could do. Could it become part of standard newborn screening? So that was really interesting because I'd never had my own I'd never had my own um, NIH funding before. So I ended up, you know, doing that for this is about six years. And we've just, uh, we're just finishing up that um, study and kind of finishing data analysis and things. Um, and then we're doing another um, study uh, looking at um, elective newborn screening. It's a, a program called Early Check. And that gives parents the opportunity to sign up to have their baby tested for additional conditions um, in addition to what's on the standard North Carolina newborn screening um, platform. So, uh, you know, and I'm still involved in other various research projects. Um, and then because of my newborn screening work, I got involved in more policy areas. So policy in terms of what conditions should we be screening for in newborns and doing that at the state and national level. And um, I'm currently the chair of a, um, a committee that helps inform uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services about what new conditions should be added to the recommended uniform screening panel. And so, for example, um, the, the last one added uh, is a condition called spinal muscular atrophy, which can cause severe problems and in the more severe type, children usually die within the first couple of years of life, but there's now uh, a couple of new treatments for it. So one is a, a, a medication, it's a oligo-skipping um, type of drug that can be in, infused in the, into the spinal cord. And it's remarkable, you know, how well children do who otherwise, you know, would, would have died. Um, and then there's also a new approved gene therapy treatment for spinal muscular atrophy. So it's been really interesting, you know, getting involved in government work and how things run or <laughs> sometimes don't run very well um, in the government. But um, uh, so, you know, that, that's been really interesting. And then I've been involved in different national genetics organizations and boards and things like that. So my, my typical day is fairly, uh, it differs a lot from day to day and week to week. Um, I still have clinic uh, usually two or three days a week or oversee, if it's not my own clinic, I oversee the fellows in their clinics. And then um, we have some specialty clinics for a couple of different syndromes. Uh, one is called Prader-Willi syndrome and one is Angelman syndrome. Uh, so we run those usually once a month or every other month. And then, um, you know, teach our fellows, residents, medical students, um, do a bit of administrative work. Not, not as much. I used to be the chief of our pediatric division. Um, and so that 
you know, I, I did for 10 years and then I felt like I'd spent enough time doing that. So I'm, I'm no longer in the administrative side of things, but do a little bit. I still sign off on cases in the cytogenetics lab. So I, I still keep involved in the lab. And then I have a lot of calls, conference calls, Zoom meetings, um, you know, for some of the newborn screening policy issues um, and, and other things. So anyway, um, it's, it's been great. I mean, I think the, you know, what I like about it is that it is something different every day. And um, thinking back to when I was in pediatrics and, you know, certainly a lot of my fellow residents were going into primary care pediatrics, which is wonderful. You know, I'm glad because we need pediatricians. But for me, I think it didn't have enough um, variety. You know, I, you know, seeing children kind of day in and day out, it's wonderful to follow kids, you know, throughout their young lives and see them grow up. But I, I kind of wanted, you know, to be more involved in, in different things than kind of, you know, strep pharyngitis and uh, things like that. So um, anyway, I, you know, I just love seeing unusual things. You know, it's, it's sort of detective work. You know, we see a child with maybe, you know, multiple different birth defects, um, maybe some, you know, unusual features and trying to figure out, you know, what do they have? Is it a syndrome? Is it, you know, what's the cause of it? Is it something they were exposed to, you know, during fetal development? Um, you know, what's going on? Um, I love that detective work to, to try to figure out an answer. And then, especially now where we're able to do so much more in terms of diagnostics, um, you know, we're able to do whole exome and whole genome sequencing to look at a baby's or child's whole, you know, genome, which has given us a lot um, higher rate of, you know, being able to answer the question, what's going on and what, um, you know, to inform families, you know, parents, they always, well, most want to know, you know, what's wrong with my child, what's wrong with my baby. Mothers typically feel guilty if there's anything wrong with the baby, even though, you know, most of the time it's nothing they had any control over. But if you can't give them a definite answer for what it is, I think it's something they always live with, you know, it's something that they did. Um, I've had, I've seen like adult patients where, you know, we finally came up with an answer for, you know, why this couple's daughter had, you know, severe developmental disability. Um, they sought uh, us out when their other son, who was typically developed, uh, was planning to get married. And they were very worried about his, you know, chance of having a child with the same condition. And fortunately, we were able to find a small uh, chromosome deletion in that woman. And, um, it, you know, her clinical picture fit perfectly with this syndrome. And I remember, you know, her mother saying to me, gosh, you know, for 25 years, you know, I've, I've thought I caused her problems because I, you know, I can't remember what it was. You know, I had a cold or had the flu or something, you know, while I was pregnant. I always thought that that was the cause of it. Like, no, no, no. This was something that it wasn't inherited. We tested her parents. It was just a new change in her. So her brother wasn't at risk. Um, so it really alleviated, you know, this guilt that, that they'd had for, for many, many years. 
So, you know, being able to come up with a diagnosis is, is very fulfilling and just being able to utilize all the exciting work in, in genomics, you know, and to really see it, you know, benefiting patients. Um, I'm not involved in clinical trial work in terms of like new drugs, but one of my colleagues in genetics, Joe Munzer, um, he does a lot of clinical trial work and he's involved in um, a, like if a patient has a metabolic disorder, so something like in the pathway uh, isn't isn't working right, so they, they don't make a specific enzyme, and so this can lead to, you know, buildup of abnormal substances, which can affect their brain and their heart and other parts of the body, and they can actually give that enzyme. Um, they can give it uh, into the blood, which will help the things that, you know, don't impact the brain, but to get into the brain, it has to be given in the spinal fluid. So he actually infuses the enzyme into a patient's spinal fluid, and it, it has to help their, you know, brain development, help prevent that buildup in the brain. Um, and he's also getting ready to start a gene therapy trial for another metabolic condition that currently there's no treatment for in patients usually you know they they live for many years but they have very severe intellectual disability um, so he's doing that um, there's uh, some therapy trials planned for the Angelman syndrome that I mentioned we have a special clinic for so we're excited about the possibility of participating in, in that um, so I you know I think for people who are interested on the, you know, on the clinical side of things, genetics is, is really a great way to sort of combine the science with um, being able to see patients and, and help patients and things are only going to, you know, uh, get even better advanced further in, you know, your generation. So you're very fortunate to have an opportunity to, to work in this field. And there's a lot of jobs available whether for genetic counselors, um, for uh, medical geneticists, uh, there's a huge shortage around the country. So you never have to feel, uh, you know, that, oh, I'm going to do all this and not be able to get a job. Um, and there's, you know, many, many opportunities. The salaries are improving. Um, no, we don't make as much as a neurosurgeon does, but, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, uh, enough, I found. Um, and, you know, I think we all want to diversify our profession. That's, that's been a, a real issue, you know, in, in our field. Um, and so I think, you know, um, for our patients, it would, it would be very beneficial to, you know, see providers who are more like them. Um, and so I, I think, again, you know, I would encourage everybody to, to go into genetics, um, whether it's as a PhD researcher, a genetic counselor, clinical geneticist, um, you know, there's, there's just all uh, various opportunities. So I will stop there, and um, if anybody has any questions or wants to talk about something, certainly glad. Um, my own case, you know, you can go out and do something else for a while, you know, and think about it a little bit more and then decide what you 
want to do or, or not. So I think, you know, people shouldn't think, oh, if I don't go to medical school right out of college, I'm never going to go because so many people, I think more probably than when I was in school do, you know, take a year, a few years off, you know, doing something else to, to really figure out, you know, what it is. Cause it's, it's hard to know, you know, until you get out into the world, you know, whether it's doing more research and I think it's great. I did, I spent a summer after college doing uh, basic science research and then um, did like a project in college um, in a basic science uh, cytogenetics lab. So I'm really grateful, you know, that I had that experience and kind of what's basic science like, do I want to work at the bench? Um, of course, there's still, you know, research opportunities in terms of um, translational research, you know, working more maybe in drug development, things like that, that will benefit patients ultimately, um, as well as, you know, clinical research and, and clinical trials working, you know, directly with patients. So, Anybody have any questions or things you're wondering about or got one um so what would you say based on your experience is the biggest difference between being a genetic counselor and a clinical geneticist oh good question yes so um what i uh you know as a genetic counselor i you know i worked really closely with the geneticist um, like I would be in on, you know, when he'd be examining the baby, you know, or the child, I'd be in with him, you know, and I'd usually be the one taking notes and jotting down, you know, different measurements, like, because in clinical genetics, we, we measure the, like, we measure the ears and the, how, you know, far apart the eyes are and the things like that. So we, um, uh, you know, I, I work closely, but I, I could, you know, like I wouldn't be the, oh, and I might guess, like I might, you know, when I'd see the baby first, because I'd talk to the parents, I'd get the family history, I'd get the baby's medical history or the child's medical history. Um, and uh, then I'd go in and present it to the doctor. And I might have an idea, you know, sometimes like, oh, I think, you know, the child might have such and such a syndrome. So it would be sort of fun to know, like, oh, is he going to agree with me and things. But I, I couldn't be the one to make that diagnosis, which for me is was just something that I regretted. And so it was one of the things that motivated me to go on for, let's see, 10 more years of training, but to, you know, be able to make that diagnosis and to order the testing and to, you know, provide the therapy if there was, you know, something that we could do to, to treat the condition. So, I, I, you know, I think that's the, the main thing. Um, you know, uh, geneticists and genetic counselors work as teams. We couldn't do, you know, as a physician, we couldn't do what what we do in genetics without the genetic counselors. So they're a real vital part of the team and they're, they're very well versed in like, you know, what's a significant variant in a gene and what isn't and how do we go to the databases and try to figure that out and how do we, you know, put materials together so that a, a family can understand what you're trying to tell them about this, you know, often very, uh, rare, complicated type of, you know, genetic condition going on with their child. 
Um, there's, you know, probably more, you know, and I, I benefited as a physician from having that background as a genetic counselor. Because, you know, it's a lot of psychology, it's ethical work, it's, you know, things, it's how to communicate with patients. And so it, it served me very well, you know, over the years as a physician. Um, but I, I can tell sometimes from the gen other geneticists I work with, I mean, some are wonderful in terms of their communication skills with families, but some aren't that great. And, you know, um, I think, you know, that's where in terms of the, you know, counseling, working with families more closely, um, you know, the genetic counselors uh, probably have more opportunities to, to do that. Um, so, you know, and it, it is, it's a lot more years of education, you know, to, to go on and, you know, do medical school and residency. We have been able to shorten the uh, time a, a little bit in terms of now you can, there are combined programs in pediatrics and genetics or internal medicine and genetics. So you can do those um, in four years instead of five or six years as it used to be. So we, we've shortened it a bit because, you know, again, trying to get more people to go into the field, um, a lot of it, you know, I mean, it's hard because, you know, I know the huge, um, you know, debt that so many students have nowadays. And it's really hard to think, you know, just after college, like, oh, then I'm, you know, going to have medical school debt. And then, you know, I want to be able to start earning money. So we, we have, you know, tried to shorten it as much as possible. So the combined uh, programs are quite popular. Um, they, you know, do well in terms of um, most fill uh, in the country. Um, so I don't know. I hope that answered your question. Well, I've got another question. Yeah. Um, so what skills, um, abilities, and behaviors would you say are most helpful in succeeding in your career? Well, I, I think, you know, you have to be motivated. You have to really want to do doing, um, you know, sometimes and, you know, because I was older when I started in medical school and, you know, but then I thought like, well, I'm going to be, you know, a certain age anyway, I'm going to be 30 and, you know, I might as well be doing what I really like, you know, than being in a job where I'm not all that happy. Um, but I think the motivation, I think good time management is, you know, always helpful, even starting in middle school, right? You have to have good time management skills and study skills, and everybody's different. Um, I, I probably found that one of the hardest things going back to school after being out working for a few years was, you know, just getting back into the routine of having to study. And there's so much in medical school that you have to learn. Um, you know, it, it can be easily overwhelming. And if you don't have a good system to kind of keep up with it, you know, it's so easy to fall behind. I had challenges, you know, I remember like one of my first anatomy exams, you know, I got feedback from the professor that like, oh, you know, your, your, you know, results are, are not um, indicative of success, you know, in medical school. And I was like, oh, God, I'm never going to make it, you know, and then as a as a resident, you know, it was, I was starting out as a resident during the peak of the AIDS epidemic. And even though, you know, I was in pediatrics, but we had a lot of children who had HIV. 
and I was assigned to the infectious disease service my first month, my first rotation. And I remember, you know, like calling friends of mine, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it, you know, for three years of, of residency because it was so sad. I mean, you always remember like your first patient, whether as a medical student or a, a resident, you know, and I still remember my, my first patient, um, little girl, you know, who was HIV positive because her mom was a drug addict and she spent months and months in, in the hospital. And it was just one of the saddest things. And, you know, I, I was just learning to draw blood and I, my chief resident or my third year resident on our team was pregnant. So she didn't want to draw blood. And so, you know, as an intern, I had to go in and oh, it was, it was, you know, sweetest little girl, like would point out like, oh, this is a good vein here. And, you know, I still, I, you know, I got through it and thank goodness, you know, we have treatment nowadays so that, you know, kids like that are not in the hospital, but now there's other things, right? There's, you know, the effects of, the coronavirus in children and, you know, we're seeing that unfortunately, but, but it, it, it is rare, but, you know, it's challenges like that. I think, you know, finding out through like volunteer work, um, you know, if you like working with patients, cause you know, I've had, you know, friends, colleagues who found out along the way, you know, I really don't like working with patients. So it's probably better to, you know, go into a different area. Now some do go into pathology, where they don't have direct interaction with patients, but they still, you know, do a lot of like genetics work. There's molecular pathology, you know, like the people that run our molecular lab, um, clinical lab at UNC, you know, they're, um, you know, some of them are pathologists. So there is still that, that opportunity, but I think just getting through medical school, you have to enjoy working working with patients and in pediatrics, you know, a lot of people don't go into pediatrics because they'll say, well, I really love the kids, but I couldn't work with the parents. The parents would drive me crazy. So you have to, you know, learn how to work with parents too. So, um, but I mean, you know, I, I work uh, with so many patients with developmental disabilities and, you know, I, I, I enjoy it. I mean, it's, it can be frustrating because, there's often not medicine, there's not a cure, you know, we can refer for therapy services and things, but I never cease to be amazed by how, you know, strong parent, the parents are, you know, um, just doing everything they can to help, help their kids. Um, so I think, you know, those are um, sort of the main things, but yeah, getting experience, I mean, this is a time, you know, whether it's working in a lab, volunteering at the, you know, uh, one of the community clinics, um, uh, you know, the medical students started a, um, a free clinic years and years ago. I think it was one of the first in the country that's still in operation. I'm not sure now what the, how it's running um, or if it's running, but anyway, you know, uh, undergrad students, you know, have opportunities to, to volunteer at the clinic, even if it's just, you know, some paperwork, but at least you're, you know, uh, being able to help with, with seeing patients there. And um, so I think, you know, just getting experience. Um, I worked at a, a retirement home slash nursing home when I was an undergrad, you know, to try to see like, what did I, did I like, you know, working with people? Um, I worked 
grad school. I worked part-time in a nursery school. That was like the hardest thing. You know, that was like much harder than being an intern. I was, you know, I'd just be exhausted at the end of the day working with, you know, the little kids in nursery school. So, um, and I uh, can't remember now, but just, you know, sort of taking advantage of, of different opportunities to get exposed to that and is helpful. What are some of the different, oh, sorry, you go ahead. Okay. Um, I just wanted to know, um, could you elaborate more about how you got into policy? Like what made you want to do policy work and how you got into policy and like what were some um, struggles or difficulties you've noticed while working in policy? Yeah, um, I think, you know, it was through kind of a mentor of mine, which is something, yeah, that is important. You know, I mean, we find mentors throughout our careers and it's important to identify mentors whether it's your advisor in college, but even after, you know, you, you grow up and, and, you know, get a job, it's important to identify mentors. And it may be somebody you work with, but it often isn't. Um, I had had a mentor, Don Bailey, who's a PhD um, research person who does a lot of work in um, intellectual disabilities in, in patients. And um, so he and I started working together and he, got quite well known in his field. And then because of that would like introduce me to people he knew and would, you know, have me come and present to like a group in Washington, you know, about our, the research we were doing, looking at, you know, genomic sequencing in newborns. And, um, and then uh, someone who I'd worked with years ago when I'd been a genetic counselor in DC, uh, you know, she and I kept in touch. And when uh, openings came up in this federal committee, advisory committee about newborns and newborn screening, you know, she recommended me, Don had recommended me. So, you know, I, I got onto the committee and then, um, you know, was, was able to, well, eventually I was asked to be the chair of the committee. I'm still not, not quite sure, but um, anyway, uh, so, you know, your mentors can be really helpful. Um, and then uh, in North Carolina, you know, getting involved in, in our own newborn screening that we do in North Carolina and different things about genetics. We've just started a new kind of advisory uh, panel for the state about having a, a gene, genetics and genomics plan for North Carolina, um, like trying to reach, you know, underserved communities where, you know, often folks can access genetic services for one reason or the other, um, things like that. And I think that, um, you know, anytime you work with government, it's frustrating. And I, I feel so bad now for a lot of my friends, you know, who work in DC and have been just very, you know, very disheartened. They're such good people and they're such devoted people. Um, but, you know, with things the way they are now, they've, they've just become, you know, very, very disheartened. Um, you know, hopefully things will turn around. Um, our work uh, couldn't go on for several months because there's this uh, act called Newborn Screening Saves Lives Act that um, authorizes our committee to exist. And it didn't get passed. It got passed by the House, but it didn't get passed um, by the US Senate last year. And because of that, and I think it was primarily one senator that was against it for some reason, you know, you think everybody wants to save 
lives of newborns. But anyway, he had some issues with it, and so it, it never got passed. So we had to shut down operations for like six months. And now, you know, just when we're trying to get rolling again, and now we've got COVID and all the limitations there, and then like higher ups have to approve people on the committee and there's no rhyme or reason if they don't approve people. Um, so it's, um, you know, things like that can be frustrating as well as, you know, it's, it's very slow pace, you know, I mean, you'd, um, insurance can be, you know, dealing with insurance and insurance companies that don't want to pay for genetic testing or genetic services that can be, you know, really um, frustrating too. But, you know, um, small steps can lead to good things, even if they are slow. Um, I just, I saw this quote just like the last couple of days from Abraham Lincoln, who said like, I move slowly, but I never stop. <laughs> so I think, you know, if you're dealing with policy work, that that's the way, you know, you just have to keep sort of plugging ahead and, you know, raising your voice, speaking out, um, you know, uh, trying to do better, fix things that, that aren't working well. Um, and, uh, but, but it, it is very interesting, uh, interesting work. And, you know, if we, pass a condition, you know, or, or recommend a condition. So like we can recommend a new condition to be added to newborn screening, like the spinal muscular atrophy, but it still has to get approved by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. But usually, I think, I don't know of any cases where the Secretary has disagreed and hasn't done it. But, um, you know, and then you see like for states that are doing it now, North Carolina, unfortunately, has not started uh, doing SMA newborn screening, but it is part of our research program for elective newborn screening now. But, um, you know, you look around the country and so many babies are now doing well, you know, children, I think probably since it started, you know, kids are two or three years old already. And, you know, they're amazing. They're running around, you know, you'd almost never know that anything was wrong with them. And yet, like they've had an affected sibling who didn't get detected early and didn't get treated. And they're, um, you know, like in a wheelchair and or you know, like on a ventilator, like a trach on a ventilator, they can't move, they can't breathe on their own. So these treatments, you know, are remarkable. And more and more conditions are like that where these, you know, new treatments are developed. But then again, you know, they're, they're very expensive, very expensive. I mean, it's like for the treatments, it's, you know, a million dollars plus. And so, you know, it, then some people say, well, is that the best use of our limited health resources? You know, maybe we could provide primary care for, you know, 10,000 children for what, you know, it costs to treat, you know, one child with one of these extremely rare conditions. But a friend of mine said one time, you know, we never should think of money if it's saving the life of a child. So, you know, but it, it, it is, can be, you know, controversial. We bring the ethics people into it to talk about things like that. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. What different settings do clinical geneticists work in? 
Oh, good question. Yeah, so as a clinical geneticist, um, you can work in um, uh, on the adult side of things, um, like adult genetics, um, and, uh, you know, I think somewhat similar to, you know, conditions that we see in children, you know, can, if they survive to adulthood, they'll be seen in, in adults. Um, and then uh, also cancer genetics. So at UNC, we are, we have different groups that, that do that. Um, uh, there are some, you know, maybe smaller hospitals around the country, smaller medical centers where one or two individuals, you know, may do everything. Like you'd see pediatric cases, adults, and then cancer genetics is, is a big part of the genetics field now with, you know, looking like if a woman has breast cancer, you know, does she have a RCA1 or 2 mutation, you know, or her daughter's going to be at risk, other family members going to be at risk. And then there's the whole area of prenatal genetics, um, which uh, we have a, a prenatal geneticist who's trained in OBGYN and what's called maternal fetal medicine. So she actually like does the amniocentesis and, you know, chorion sampling and ultrasounds and things like that. Um, so we all get together usually once a week for a, a Thursday afternoon journal club um, conference, but, um, you know, we all have separate areas. But as I said, in, in some smaller uh, places, you know, there's maybe, you know, just one or two geneticists who, who do everything. Um, so you can work in, the, in a lot of different settings and then, you know, um, not all geneticists do research, but many many do. Um, and that's kind of something, you know, when you're looking at a job, you know, to say like, is research, you know, going to be a required component of my position here? Um, um, and some people aren't interested in research. Like I have, you know, several fellows who I've trained to, you know, see patients, manage patients, um, but they, you know, are not involved in research. Whereas other folks, you know, they, they want research to be a big part of their uh, career. So, um, yeah, lots, lots of different things. And then some do like go into industry. Uh, some work for the, you know, big pharmaceutical companies, work with these companies that are developing treatments for rare genetic conditions. So lot, lots of things out there. Okay, well, it's only, uh, only two minutes left. <laughs> but we want to be mindful of, of everyone's time. And I hope everyone will thank, join me in thanking uh, Dr. Powell for uh, joining us on this call today. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you. You had, great, you had great questions, and I wish you all the best. And if, you know, you are interested or, you know, since I run the training program in genetics, if you have questions about that, um, I also work closely. I'm on the advisory group for the genetic counseling program in Greensboro at UNC Greensboro. So if you have questions about that too, I'm glad to answer what I can or get you in touch with um, the directors of, of that program. So best of luck. I'm so glad you're doing the, you know, taking up this um, summer opportunity and sorry, everybody can't be together, but <laughs> it's nice to see you all virtually. So good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.